You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 14, and we will continue reading straight through to verse 47. And our text this morning will be the verses 42 through 47 of that passage. This describes, of course, the events of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit immediately following the time when those those tongues that looked like fire came down upon the heads of the disciples and they began to speak in tongues. And then the Apostle Peter stood up and and preached to all those who were assembled there. And as we read these words, we are, of course, reading the word of the Lord. It's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. You also remember that this sermon had a tremendous effect. His words that Peter preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, saw 3,000 people added to the church on the day that he preached it. And so with that in mind, let's hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, all Israel, be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You hear about these these studies all the time. You hear about them on the radio. You read about them in the paper. They come across your computer screen. Where researchers will, will gather data on a group of people that have that have not been exposed to something before. So Sometimes they'll, they'll expose a group of children to, to large blocks of television or to violent video games and they'll, they'll see what happens as a result of this exposure. Or sometimes they'll, they'll test the effects of a new drug on, on a group that's suffering from some kind of disease and they'll, they'll see what happens across this large group as a result of taking this new experimental drug. If you get a group large enough and you give them the same experience, researchers can gather a lot of data from that as a result. Well, we come across something similar to that when we read our text this morning. Our text, the verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2, is the text that the elders will be using as their theme as they carry out home visits in this year to come. And as they look at this text with you, and as we look at this text this morning, it's it's almost like we're, we're witnesses of, of some kind of exper- experiment. That we get to see this large group who all together have the same experience and... So we're wondering, well, what is going to happen as a result of this? This is, this is an extraordinary event. Nothing like it had ever happened before. And yet, through the word of God, we become witnesses of it. The question is, what would happen if, if 3,000 people at the same time were, were cut to the heart in repentance after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would these 3,000 people begin to do 
What would be the result of that experience of, of learning for the first time the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you and the forgiveness of sins? And asking the question, what now shall we do? That's the question that comes out of, of the verses before our text. And, and our text, then, is the answer. This is the result. What would these humble and repentant people do after they've come to believe the saving work of Jesus Christ? They would gather together for worship and fellowship. They would gather together. That's like the immediate response. It's the involuntary response of the Spirit working in you that you want to gather for worship and for fellowship. And not just on one day of the week, but every day of the week. That's what would happen. That's what did happen. They come together in distinctive and important ways that become the pattern for the church. That the church will follow. They come together ultimately because the Holy Spirit is at work among them. The Holy Spirit is the one who is inducing this worship to flow from them. The Holy Spirit is the one who is, is calling them together. These people from, from different parts of the world even, with different backgrounds, these people united in the gospel of Jesus Christ have, have no alternative but to unite together in thick and beautiful community and fellowship. What you see is a church worshiping God and enjoying one another. And so our theme this morning as we look at this text is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the spirit builds the church. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Peter proclaims that gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the spirit goes powerfully to work building the church. And we'll see three elements of that preaching of the gospel. We'll see the gospel-induced worship. We'll see the gospel-induced fellowship. And we'll see the gospel-induced growth. Tremendous and amazing, beautiful growth that happens in the church as a result. So first of all, the gospel-induced worship. Verse 42 of our text has been, is well-documented. It's been much looked at and considered by those who who want to see what's the pattern for the church. What are the elements that make up a church coming together in worship? And verse 42 describes four elements of worship. Teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. These were four things that the church, it seems almost spontaneously, spontaneously by the work of the Spirit, came together to do together. And these four things become the pattern for the church ever since. So let's look at those four elements. The first thing that they do is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is the apostles' teaching? You're probably familiar with the apostles' creed. And some people would say immediately that, that that's what this is talking about. The Apostles' teaching is what we have in the Apostles' Creed. But, but a sense of church history would tell you that's not exactly true. The Apostles, of course, didn't write the Apostles' Creed. 
The Apostles' Creed is, is based on the teaching of the Apostles. So, if we want to find the Apostles' teaching, we've got to go back further than the Apostles' Creed. And we have it right in front of us in the book of Acts. We have the Apostles' teaching. What was the Apostles' teaching? Well, you can summarize it in, in one thing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ, they taught. He was prophesied in the Old Testament. He was killed by the Jewish authorities, but God raised him from the dead. This is the teaching of the apostles. That his death and his resurrection was effective for paying for the sins that separated both Jews and Gentiles to God so that they could be reconciled to him and accounted righteous before him. That was the teaching of the apostles. It was about what Jesus Christ had accomplished in his death and resurrection and what it meant, namely the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation of sinners to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. This is what the apostles taught. And so as the people received this message and came to believe, this continued to be the message that they wanted, that they needed. These were, these were newborn babies in the church and they, they craved this teaching of the apostles like Emma Rose craves her mother's milk. Like a newborn baby craves milk, so newborn Christians and all Christians crave pure spiritual milk, the milk of the gospel, as Peter himself, one of the apostles, writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. The teaching of the apostles was was the, the milk, the sustenance, the life of these Christians. And so they, they wanted it, they needed it. They wouldn't settle for anything else. And this message for them as they came together as the body of Christ was, was their lifeblood. It was where life came for them. And so this, this teaching of the apostles, it, it just simply had to be there. This gospel of Jesus Christ had to be there. It has to be from the authority that the Spirit inspired, namely the teachings of the apostles, which we now have laid out in the New Testament. It's this teaching, it's this gospel of Jesus Christ, which the church needs, which is the life of the church. It's not seven principles for a healthier marriage. It's not a a spiritual conversation about life and existence. It's not a self-help pep talk. What the church craves, what the church needs, what the church lives by is the historical reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection. And that is what drives us to repentance and faith in him through which we have life. It is our life, brothers and sisters. We need the gospel. And you have to crave the gospel. And if you stop hearing the gospel when you gather together for worship, then you have to make a lot of noise and demand that the gospel of Jesus Christ be preached. Because without it, you'll die. It's the lifeblood of the body of Jesus Christ. 
If the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins is not what pumps through the veins of the church, then the church will die. Then the church will be a fake. It will be an imposter. It will be a false body of Christ. How can it be any other way? It must be the blood of Jesus Christ which flows through our veins as we gather for worship. And so we see these believers devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching because they would have nothing else. They also devoted themselves to fellowship, real, meaningful fellowship. And in fact, it's so significant that we'll spend the next point speaking about this fellowship that they have. But for now, we'll continue on. We read that they broke bread together. And you'll notice in our text that it mentions twice the breaking of bread. Verse 42, they came together for the breaking of bread. And in verse 46, it says they broke bread in their homes. And there's something slightly different between the two expressions there. I won't get into all the details about it, but they are slightly different. It seems that what verse 42 is talking about is something more formal than what verse 46 is speaking about. Not everyone is is agreed on this, but it seems most likely that what is being spoken of here is the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper. Again, it's not entirely clear. There is disagreement, but that seems to be what Luke means when he writes about the breaking of bread here in this context of worship. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? Because Jesus Christ, before he went to his death, and then after that rose and ascended into heaven, shared a meal, a very significant meal with his disciples. And and when he shared that meal, he spoke at length about his ascension, and he promised that the Holy Spirit would come to them. He communed with his disciples there at that meal, at the Lord's Supper, the first ever Lord's Supper. And he showed them that the elements, the, the broken bread and the poured out wine pointed to him and to his sacrifice for sins. And so it makes sense that as the church receives the gospel of Jesus Christ and they believe in him, that they want to, in a sense, go back to that communion that they had with Jesus Christ. That they want to commune and they want to remember what Jesus Christ has done. As he had said to them, do this in remembrance of me. Continue to do this. Don't stop meeting together. And so the Spirit, through the gospel, induced them to come together around the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And actually, it's that the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven and remembering that that at this time, this is a pretty recent event in the life of the church, which also helps us to understand the fourth element, namely prayer. So we've got the teaching of the apostles, fellowship, breaking of bread, and finally, fourthly, prayer. Prayer was, of course, an important part of the faith life of God's people at all times, from the very beginning. Prayer is communion with and communication with God. And that already was happening at the very beginning. Prayer, as we understand in the Heidelberg Catechism, summarizing the Word of God, is the most important part of thankfulness. And so wherever God's people have been thankful to God, they have expressed themselves in prayer. Prayer is a response to the blessing, the blessings of grace that God gives to his children. So there's always been prayer for God's people. But 
There seems to be something particular about this prayer now, because there's something new for the church, isn't there? Now there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there's the finished work of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. So this church didn't just come together for prayer because they had to, because they were supposed to, because, well, that's just what you do when you come together. And we can easily fall into that, can't we? Oh, prayer just becomes a formal part of our time together here. And prayer becomes a formal part of our lives together as families. We, we seek order and structure in our lives, and, and that's a good thing. But easily, prayer can become rote. It can become a formula. It can become something that you just do. But what the church comes together for is not some rote or formula or something that we just have to do. But what the church comes together for around the gospel of Jesus Christ is gospel-induced prayer. And we pray because prayer comes as a response, as the gospel flows into us, prayer flows out to the Father in heaven so that we commune with the Father and with Jesus Christ at his right hand through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now think of that situation in the early church. So many of those people together in Jerusalem had seen Jesus. They knew Jesus. They had seen him teaching and preaching. They knew that he had been killed. They knew that he had risen from the dead. They knew him. Those disciples had spent the better part of three years with him. He was not only their rabbi, he was their friend, their savior, and their Lord. But when he had ascended into heaven, he had left them. And then he had sent his Holy Spirit. So what would it be when the church comes together, gathered together around the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would prayer be for them but the opportunity to once again commune with him who is at the right hand of God? They came together for communion with Jesus Christ and with the Father through Jesus Christ. They came together to continue to experience what they had experienced with him when he was with them in the flesh. But now it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, by the gift of the Spirit, they understood even more what Jesus Christ had come to do. And so their communion was centered on the gospel. The Spirit allowed them to understand what it meant that Christ had died, and what it meant that Christ had risen, and what it meant that Christ had ascended into the right hand of God. So filled with this knowledge, it came together in worship, responded in prayer, and communed beautifully, blessedly, with God in heaven. And so all those four elements are there in the worship. And there's more as well. There's there's a sense of awe in verse 43. There's the signs and wonders of the kingdom, these signs and wonders that continue on what Jesus Christ had done, pointing to his gospel. There's joy as they, as they can share in the joy of the gospel. But what binds all of these elements together is that they are induced, that they're, they're brought forward, stimulated, prompted by the powerful work and the beautiful person of Jesus Christ, their savior. So the first part was, Gospel-induced worship. The second part is gospel-induced fellowship. Gospel-induced fellowship. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word fellowship. Maybe you think of the, the room right over behind this wall here. Sometimes 
spoken of as the fellowship hall. Maybe you think of that activity that you'll do after you leave from here. You'll, you'll all leave and you'll fellowship and then you'll go home and, and you won't fellowship again till you come back again after this afternoon. And after that, you'll fellowship again. We often think of, we speak of fellowship in terms of the mingling that happens after church. And certainly that is fellowship. Fellowship includes that. But fellowship, brothers and sisters, is so much more than that. It's not just a Sunday after church thing. Fellowship is something that the church engages in all the time, every day. And it's not just about sharing a piece of cake or a coffee or a conversation with each other. Sharing fellowship is about sharing your goods with each other, sharing your time and your talents, sharing your life with one another in the body of Jesus Christ. Fellowship refers to that that thick and meaningful communion and community that the church comes into, where everyone is is into each other's lives in a, in a meaningful and beautiful way. It's that community that the gospel of Jesus Christ induces. That comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does that work? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ bring us to this fellowship? Well, we have to understand that this word for fellowship is similar to the word for common. And we see that word for common in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Similar word as the word for fellowship. So as these believers came together and had everything in common, we see that, that those who have more are, are selling their possessions or are giving to those who have less. It's clear that Luke is not saying that they, they sold everything they had, nor is he saying that the, the leaders in the church forced everyone to sell everything that they had. No, this was voluntary and it was partial. Okay, this isn't some new kind of communism that's happening here. But this is, this is a response that's worked in the hearts of those, of everyone in the church. That those who have more give to those who have less, and those who have less receive with thankful hearts. The people, though, didn't just share resources together. They didn't just cut checks for each other and hand them off in each other's mailboxes or something like that. No, they met together. They, they shared time together. We read that they, they continued to meet in the temple courts every day, praising God together. They, you could say they shared their whole lives together. They would break bread. And we said that's probably something different. Probably that's just referring to eating a meal together. So they would come together for meals and share fellowship in that way as well. They would eat together. And so the gospel created this thick and this thick community and this warm hospitality among all the believers there in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit drew them together, all these, all these people with different backgrounds and, and perhaps they had never even known each other before. But, but when they, when they knew the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had an immediate connection with others. They had immediate love for others. They had immediate concern for others. And so they came together in unity. And just like blood flows through the body, so their resources and time and their lives flowed through the body of Jesus Christ from one to the next. Now notice, brothers and sisters, we need to notice this. Because under God's blessing, We have many families in our church, and we have many large families in our church, and children are a blessing from the Lord. They most certainly are. 
But notice that this is not family-induced worship. These believers are not just united by, by their own blood. No, they're united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that unity is even stronger than the unity of the family bond. This is gospel-induced fellowship. This is the fellowship that our church must strive for. Fellowship that wherein all the families and all the individuals and everyone in our church and everyone who visits and everyone who happens to be here is is drawn together by the person and by the work of Jesus Christ. By the gospel. That's what draws us together. And that's what forms our fellowship. Not, Not where we live. Not social status. Not economic wellness, not the family, the gospel. And so how does this happen in the church? How does the church, how does it happen that we come together around the gospel? Well, it must be by hearing the gospel. How can, how can I, as, as a minister of the word, induce, help to induce, be used by the spirit to induce this kind of fellowship? Well, by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does the gospel teach us? Well, it teaches us that we are all the same. We can enjoy fellowship because we're not all different. We're not on all different levels. We're all the same. We're all the same in our sin. Not one of us is more deserving of God's grace than the next. We are all sinners who have received God's grace. So someone can come here and they can have impeccable credentials in the eyes of the world. They can have high social status. They can have great social skills. They can be fabulously rich. And another person can come here with, metaphorically, carrying so much baggage that they can't even get in the front door. And that they, they don't even want to come in the front door. Because they feel so so bad and ashamed of themselves. But you know what? Here, together, and wherever we come together, as the church... As brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the same. We are all sinners, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, helpless, lost sinners. In Christ, redeemed, righteous, beautiful, sanctified saints. The gospel induces us, brothers and sisters, to true fellowship when it teaches us about who we really are. Then all the pretension melts away. Then all the pride melts away. Then we're humbled, just like those people who heard the message of the gospel were cut to the heart by Peter's message and began immediately to gather together and to share all things in common, to share deep and meaningful fellowship in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's gospel-induced fellowship. And finally, we come to gospel-induced growth. We read in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As those believers worshipped together, they came together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day, more and more people were were joining them. So the 3,000 at first, but it just continued on from there. Shortly after this, we'll read that there were 5,000 men already in Jerusalem in the church. More and more people being born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Luke, the author, makes clear here and elsewhere is that this growth is, yes, through the gospel. It happens in the church, but it happens by the work of the Holy Spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit. God 
gives the growth. Look what he says there in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number. The Lord is the one who's in control here. We receive the gospel. We worship. We fellowship. The Lord adds the growth. And God does give the growth, brothers and sisters. Where his word and spirit are at work, God gives the growth. Sometimes it's extraordinary. Sometimes it's ordinary. Sometimes it's in the quantity, the numbers. Sometimes it's in the quality, in the depth. Sometimes it's in obvious, visible ways that that make you go, wow. And other times it's in subtle and unnoticed ways that you don't even see. But the Spirit continues to build the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit began that right after Pentecost, and the Spirit is still doing that today. This is what the Spirit is doing. Building the church around and in and from the gospel. The good news of what Jesus Christ our Savior has done for us. When he came to this world and he died on the cross for sin and he rose from the grave for righteousness and he ascended into heaven to be our mediator at God's right hand. And so brothers and sisters, let us continue to gather around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.